What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. When Gang of Four debuted in 1979, it was a sound unlike any other. Intense, aggressive, and danceable. I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. And I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. We sit down with Gang of Four founders John King and Andy Gill. Plus, we review the surprising new album by Radiohead. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX, you're listening to Sound Opinions. And now it's time for some music news. That is a song called The Ivory Gate of Dreams from the progressive metal band Fate's Warning. All of us have been watching with fascination the developments in the Middle East as young people and others are taking to the streets and demanding democratic change. Where you have young people, you have music. Often, where you have political movements, you have music pushing them forward. Last Mood FM, according to a new story in Evolver FM, is a program that was developed by a company called Music Hack Day New York. It is used to ascertain the mood of countries all over the world in almost real time, based on the most popular songs there from a read of Last FM's monitoring of what people are listening to in their media players, what they're purchasing from on-demand music services, what they're downloading, what they're streaming. And Fate's Warning has been a big hit in Bahrain, on the streets where people are protesting right now. There's indigenous music too, Jim. It's not just all Western-influenced. There is a website, MideastTunes.com, created by an activist in Bahrain, Ezra El Shafei, 24 years old, grew up listening to Kurdish hip-hop, not Western music, and she says, my inspiration comes from music. Sure, people like Gandhi give me hope, but what makes me want to go out and make change is people's stories, and that comes through their music. You know, we were listening to some of the stuff that's playing on MideastTunes.com. There's Palestinian trance music, Greg. There is Jordanian punk. There is Bahraini R&B. I wish more of it was less influenced by bad Western pop, but it still is inspiring to hear the voices of people in these countries singing sometimes political lyrics, sometimes just inane lyrics, Mm -hmm. about the situation in their homelands. Fast company, fast company, you're going nowhere, you're going nowhere fast. Fast company, fast company, you're going nowhere. The business magazine 
Fast Company has come out with its annual top 10 list of most innovative companies in music. It's always worth a look. Terra.com at number 5 for multi-pronged, profitable, music-focused content, according to Fast Company. The band Arcade Fire at number 4, Jim. Those customized music videos that they've been churning out attracted Fast Company's attention. Number three, Big Champagne, the site that monitors social media and how that has become the new way of monitoring the success and popularity of a band. Mm. Coca-Cola for, quote, daring marketing model that redefines the relationship among consumer brands, record companies, and artists. Take that for what you will. And at number one, Pandora, the Internet streaming service. I find this fascinating because a couple of years ago we were talking about the fact that Pandora and other Internet broadcasters were hanging by a thread. The music industry was going after higher royalty rates for these Internet radio stations, and they were saying basically we can't survive if this goes through. A compromise was reached, and Pandora has thrived ever since. It is now a $55.2 million company. It just issued an initial public offering of $100 million in shares, which means it's going to be able to pay a dividend to its preferred stockholders. And it just engineered a deal with General Motors Company, which is going to launch a new system to stream online radio from Pandora in upcoming Chevrolet models like uh, Volt and Equinox. So a pretty big year for Pandora. Absolutely, Greg. I'll, I'll tell you something else I found fascinating about the Fast Company Top 10 music list for this year is that last year's number one company wasn't even on the top mm-hmm. 10 this this year. Last year, Fast Company chose Spotify. This company formed in 2006 in Sweden has rapidly become the international rival to Apple's iTunes. 10 million users, and it's been trying to get a beachhead, if you will, in the U.S. for quite some time. This is a company that wants to pay the artists when people download their music and they're having a hard time getting deals with the American music industry. In recent days, there have been a couple of different stories about Spotify. Some are saying that Spotify is running the risk of being completely derailed by Apple's new subscription plan for iTunes. But there was an interesting story in the New York Times that said Spotify recently was valued at more than $1 billion dollars, having having just secured some new financing, presumably to fund its push into the U.S. Somebody thinks this company is worth a lot of money, a billion dollars. Other people are saying Apple may soon put the stake through its heart. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the coming months. listening to Sound Opinions, and that was Damaged Goods from Gang of Four's 1979 classic album, Entertainment. Two of the founding members, legendary guitarist Andy Gill and singer John King, are joining us in the studio this week. After it was released, entertainment defined post-punk, that genre of music that would go on to influence bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Franz Ferdinand, The Rapture, countless others. 
And over three decades later, Gang of Four is still going strong. They've got a new album out called Content. But we wanted to start our conversation with Andy and John going back to the beginning. You guys have known each other a long time. Went to university at Leeds together, right? Art school. Yeah. yeah. Talk about the initial idea behind the band. It seemed like it was all there on that first record, Entertainment. When did you feel that you got that sound? When? Yeah, when did you feel like, okay, we've written a song and that's who we are and what we want to be? When we, when we started off, I mean, we've been listening to the cassette which John found in his loft of our very first gig. And... It's much punkier than than you would think. It's quite. It's kind. Of, it's sort of a poppy, punky thing. And I think what what happened was as we started to take the whole process a bit more seriously. I mean, a lot of the time we started off some of these things were jokes, really, weren't they? I mean, some of the yeah. some of the songs we first stupid, yeah. were just to like to entertain ourselves, you know, about people we knew and just kind of funny stuff. And then you start to take it more seriously, and and then other songs get pushed out of the set, and then new ones come in as you as you refine it. And there was some point when we thought we had what 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 was what was our language i mean we i think we were trying to kind of develop a sort of language to express what we wanted to talk about i think all creative people actually when they start doing things you, you just need to work out how it is that you could be in a band and then you have to find a subject and so at the beginning you tend to write in genre you know so you go verse bridge chorus verse bridge chorus key mm. change out because that that's relatively straightforward to to do and i think to move beyond genre is really quite a big challenge and and, and that's where i think a lot of creative people get stuck is how to get out of the genre and you mm. think well if i like funk i'm going to play funk you know let's say the average white band they'll they'll actually get stuck in that thing right and it might possibly i suppose be successful but you won't be individual and i think we both being quite sort of antsy and relatively short attention spans you wanted to move on to the thing that that mattered and there was nothing out there that that sounded like the thing in our heads mm. so you have to make it up I'm thinking of a song like Anthrax, which is fairly early on. It starts with a minute of feedback, and then you've got this kind of rolling rhythm coming in, and then you've got these apposite voices coming at each other. And you're singing a love song and comparing it to a beetle on its back, and right away you've got something <laughs> that doesn't sound like anything else in that whole punk scene of that time. You 
came to define post-punk, but I don't think anybody knew what that was. There was no, no such terminology for that. So what was the inspiration for, for something like that? How does well, a song like that begin? We both like a lot of very different things. I mean, we'd known each other since we were like 13 or 14. And the stuff we listen to is extremely varied. And one of our all-time favorite people is, is Hendrix. But also the Velvet Underground, and just, so the, the, the kind of noise, the feedback noise thing. But we plotted that song out before we even really picked up our instruments. We kind of had a piece of paper and we wrote, we'll have some, let's have some noise, and then we'll have a, a kind of monotonous groove. And then John had these words, which are this kind of like hungover love song kind of thing. And then it was going to be, well, I'll make a commentary either on that or on the process of making this recording. So it's all a bit sort of slightly wacky, but when you actually then put it together and do it, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. It sort of instantly grabbed people's imaginations. When, whenever, when we did that live, everybody was like, that's amazing. You know? mm-hmm. That particular tune, something that we wanted to do was create a song that was always different every single time we played it. And we still play it in the set, and it is different every single time. And so you've got this, this architecture around it, that, that groove and, and, and his improvisations. And I think the only constant thing are the words that I sing, I guess. You know, there's some... There's which a lot is of, nice. Which is like not, but there's a lot of flexibility there. Mm-hmm. And always, what, what I, I've no idea often what Andy's commenting on, but that was an idea. We wanted to make a song that wasn't fixed. Mm-hmm. Just going on a different reference, we were absolutely mad for watching films. Uh, particularly uh, French movies and Jean-Luc Goddard movies. movies. And I saw, I, I think, four or five movies a week, every week for four years. <laughs> and uh, we used to, we took over the University Film Society and we got into all the cinemas for nothing and the other colleges for nothing. So just saw films. And there was a film called uh, Numero Deux, which was by uh, Goddard, number two, where he had split screen on it. At that time, this, this was very uh, avant-garde. Mm-hmm. Now everyone watches Jack Bauer in 24 we got used to split screens, but he would have something going on and something that was like a commentary on that going on. It was a very interesting notion, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's where yeah. the vocals are coming in. Well, I think that, that yeah. very much was an inspiration because, it, you know, the first time you, you see that stuff on the screen, it's quite shocking, you know, because of its sort of self-awareness and you're not being invited into the drama to look through a window on a drama. It's very flat and in your face and it's talking about itself and your relationship to it. Mm-hmm. Which is something which which runs through a lot of our stuff, you know. But in, in particular, that song and that, and quite literally, the two, the two things going on at once, mm-hmm. which is a bit like life. John, one of the things I'm curious about is there was an attitude with Gang of Four from the beginning, where you know, I mean, this is kind of a shorthand reduction, but some of the initial punk bands that exploded, is particularly in the UK, Sex Pistols being the the obvious example, it all seemed like they wanted to tear everything down. And if they referenced rock history past, it was with a sneer and sarcasm, mm. you know, covering the monkeys. Mm. It was not the case with you guys. It was not the case with The Fall. It was not the case with Wire. Mm. There was both a reverence for the form and a burning desire to stretch the envelope in a million different directions and also an ambition. I mean, did you guys feel that way? You know, we we're going we're gonna to come up with our definition of what a rock band is. We're doing this interview here in, in uh, Chicago, the, the great city of uh, electric blues. And uh, I don't think any musician who is deserves to pick up any instrument cannot fail to uh, stand on the shoulders of giants. And uh, the, the the music that came up from the Delta, you know, from obviously from Robert Johnson, 
up through you know Blind Lemon Jefferson up to the great muddy waters and those great black musicians of of this city, mm. you have to take account of what they do. And as this kind of refresher course, I mean, Andy and I absolutely love muddy waters. I mean, you can't, mm. you cannot, you cannot be a musician without loving that stuff, and the simplicity and the intensity of it. And I think that uh, again, like a lot of people who take music a bit more seriously, you can't disregard all that kind of stuff. You can't sort of say like those punk uh, bands say that it's, it's all nonsense beforehand. In fact, what they did was speed it up Black Sabbath. Yeah. So, mm. so it, that's why it's so boring to listen to now because it is, the, you know, the three chord thing is, is a conceit and a gag. Mm-hmm. But it's not really that interesting. And then if you want some interest, you know, go back to, you know, Robert Johnson. If I punk thing of course really wasn't really about music at all it wasn't really you know it was about a kind of gesture of contempt uh, for the way that people had admittedly taken themselves way too seriously and and become tedious and there's no point naming anybody mm-hmm. but just the, the music of the 70s was so much dreariness and, mm-hmm. and pompous stuff you know so it was it was kind of a welcome gesture of contempt you know and mm-hmm. And also the the sort of nihilistic, dardoistic kind of all right. It's it's all about money. We all know that. So let's actually state that fact. It's all about money, you know. And trying mm. to getting a record deal from EMI and then getting another one from Virgin or whichever round it was, mm. all that stuff. But it's not about music. About you know, it's like yeah. you know. But we see, you know, how important all that is for us, and that so. We wanted to literally be be creating artifacts of pop culture. You know, that's what we wanted to do. Coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. More with Gang of Four founders Andy Gill and John King. And later on in the show, it's Greg's turn to drop a coin in the Desert Island Jukebox.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that incredible guitar you're hearing is from Andy Gill. The song is Contract, and it's by our guest this week, Gang of Four. You know, Greg, throughout the years I've been a rock critic, every guitarist I've interviewed, it seems, whether it's Dee Boone of the Minutemen, Bob Mould of Husker Du, Peter Buck of R.E.M., they all name Andy Gill as an influence. His guitar playing is powerful, it's unique, it's unorthodox. So when he and bandmate John King sat down with us, I had to ask Andy if he developed his style just to confound expectations. Well, I'm a bit contrary. Um, (laughs) That is definitely part of it, yeah. It's just that there's enough noodling in the world, you know, there's enough guitar solos, you know. And, and the noise thing is somehow inherently more interesting. And ironically, I'm not technically, I can't do a backwards Mixlidian scale down the guitar, you mm. know, or all this stuff that people can do. But I just really see it as a, as a sort of noise machine and want to use it to add effect and color to, what, to, to the structure of the thing. And I kind of see the, you know, the bass and drums as being this kind of grid, almost like iron girders that are holding this thing together. Mm. And the guitar can either go along with that and reinforce that, or it can be splattered across it like a sort of Jackson Pollock kind of, you know. Like. Yeah. So it does different things at different times. Was that there in the beginning, John, when he's 13 or 14, plug it in? <laughs> well, no, but I think that the the ambition to do something interesting obsessed the pair of us and mm. I think part of it I mean I can't you know I'm a huge fan of Andy's playing and, and, I, and as a teenager we were both massive fans of Jimi Hendrix and, mm-hmm. I, and I think that the the great Everest of, of uh, guitar music is uh, Voodoo Child's Slight Return mm. I listen to that probably every week of my entire life I've listened to that and it's got these sort of moments of existential drama where you think the world will change uh, he could change the world by hitting a string and, and when it all grinds down, and on, this is on a slight, slight return of the Billy Child track, and it goes, and he picks it up again. <laughs> and, and you think you're in an inevitable, beautiful world. And, and when, you know, it's terrible compliment to Andy, because he's, you know, he's heard it all before, but he is sensational at doing that kind of thing. And, and having that kind of drama of doing something that's not the same every night, it takes you outside of a sort of commercial pop thing. Mm. We also like dancing. There was a kind of musical apartheid in the uh, 1970s. There was white music and there was black music. And we liked dancing to Funkadelic and dancing to James Brown and reggae music. And, and then you'd have, you know, all the, all the boring students be dancing to Hi-Ho, Silver Lining or something. And, and actually that was one of the things that I think characterised the music that wasn't like punk music. It was actually it embraced black dance music.
Yeah, that's a key point, John. I'd like you both to address it, but I mean, the rhythm section had a very specific sound. It was a gang of four sound, the way Hugo Burnham played drums and Dave Allen played bass. And you've gone through a bunch of rhythm sections, Mm. and it seems like that has been an element in every one of those rhythm sections, including the new one on on content. Was that something that was explicitly laid out, Andy, in terms of what you wanted to hear underneath that guitar, or how, how did it happen that you got that very dry drum sound and that kind of foregrounded bass in the mix? We used to kind of talk about it in various different ways, but when we sort of talk about it as being a kind of democratic thing. But what what it is, with with most music, there's kind of a pyramidal kind of hierarchy thing going on with, with the, the singer and the, and the top-line melody being the most important thing. And then you've got keyboards and guitars with their chords supporting that melody, and then below that you've got the, the bass thudding away somewhere, and then below that the caveman drums, mm-hmm. you know. And, and that hierarchy is something that we weren't interested in. And everything about nearly all Gang of Four tracks are putting it side by side where the, the drums, the beat of those drums has been really worked out and it's kind of a groove, but it's odd. And then the words will fit around the drum beats and the guitar will fit around it and sometimes be oppositional. And the bass has to be prominent as well. So everything's kind of working together. saw that as a very important thing but also i mean it's being obsessed with groove you know groove is the the king really mm-hmm. and and that's what we're after with all our songs you know is groove when we started andy mentioned this cassette i found at the very first show we did the founders of the band was hugo and andy and me and we had this uh, hippie bass player to start with Wolfman, his his Dave Wolfson, his nickname was Wolfman. <laughs> and in fact, on this first recording, you know, there's some funny, it's a bit like Max's at Kansas City. There's some guy standing yeah. next to the recording booth. Oh, who's that bloody hippie in the, you know, on the bass? You know, playing too playing, many, playing too many playing notes. Playing too many notes. Yeah. So very early on, I mean, this was, I think after we'd done three shows, we fired our first bass player. And I think that was a point when we took it seriously, enough to say we can't have someone like this because it's not allowing us to move on and that's when we put an advert in Melody Maker and hired Dave Allen mm-hmm. so we w- and the advert said we wanted somebody to play fast R&B bass yeah mm. so, so th- he came in because we had this notion that we wanted someone who could do lay down a groove mm-hmm. as opposed to you know play loads of notes It goes back to what you were saying, John, earlier about Muddy Waters. The Muddy Waters Quintet in the 50s had that sound, and Andy, too, as well, that, that groove that you were talking about. It was kind of more of a, a horizontal yeah. mm-hmm. thing as opposed to a vertical, if you understand mm-hmm. what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, no, know, that, that, the pyramid yeah, was right. not there. It was kind yeah. of 
yep. instruments side by side, voice side by side with all the instruments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And who would have thunk it? Chicago blues from the 50s as an influence on one of the f- most forward-thinking oh. bands of, of the English scene in the 70s. But, I mean, you know, we, we found this old Muddy Waters uh, vinyl thing, obviously, in, in the flat that I moved into, and it was kind of battered and scratched. We used to play it all the time and be mesmerized and obsessed with with its beauty, you know, and with the clarity of it and the minimal nature of it. But, you know, we thought he's singing about his experiences and kind of not really much to do with our experiences. But very, that, that simplicity and the minimal thing and the groove thing and the atmosphere of the... This, the loneliness about it, you know, has very influenced where, where we were at as well. Mm-hmm. And it, Paul Morley wrote, um, I don't know if you know who Paul Morley is, the English sure. critic. Right, sure. He's often referred to us as a blues band, you know, mm. the, the, which I think in, in essence we kind of are, you know, it, we, we kind of are. Mm. I mean, it's very strange and it's not obvious. <laughs> that, <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's huge. It's not, <laughs> yeah, we, you don't do 12 bars. Yeah. I'm, gl- I'm glad you brought up the critics because I wanted to talk to you about the critical reception. One of the first interviews I ever did, I was a kid in high school, I got to spend a day with Lester Bangs uh, just shortly before he yeah. died. And he told the story about how you guys came to New York. And there was always a special relationship. New York got what you were doing, yeah. punk and R&B. I, I said to Bangs, you know, have you ever been thanked for, for giving an, a positive review? Uh, bands ever, you know, sort of question a 17-year-old would ask a rock critic. And he said, oh, I've been thanked for giving a negative review. Ah, Gang of Four came over here. Everybody was kissing their butt, kissing their butt. They were <laughs> gods. I told him, you guys. I suck dogs yeah. and they said thank you everybody has been kissing our butt is that a true story it's, it's absolutely true, it yeah, is true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean he, you know, he, he famously loved the Mekons and thought we were rubbish you know? yeah. Yeah. he came backstage after a, a show that we'd done he, he said he was obviously he'd had a few drinks and, uh, and so do we and I thought that's great this guy's coming and he said I don't get you guys you're just <laughs> he's a great writer I mean yeah. you know, like, but but New York loved what you were doing um, in a way that I got a sense that, that maybe England didn't understand until years later this mixture of we can mix aggressive arty uh, punk rock and, and R&B I think, I think that's true to a large extent I mean yeah we played it a lot people really got it you know mm. it wasn't a struggle people, people got it and they loved the groove and sort of danciness of it combined with the noise and and everything else and the ideas and stuff and it was it was instant in america yeah well those two things are supposed to go together you're either supposed to think about music or you let your body move to it and you Mm. were asking us to do both yeah Mm. i think from well i don't think i don't i I think the all i'd say about that is is that i've always winced when people say you know that the band that make you know that make you think while you dance because we're not asking people to think we're just you know just absorb it and just you know kind of get the get the jokes and you know that's all mm-hmm. yeah i think that you're talking about the the american thing the overwhelming majority of the bands that i love are U- u.s acts so you know think of uh, the stooges and mc5 and the Su- and the supremes and mm. chic and funkadelic and james brown and muddy waters and robert johnson and the band and bob dylan you know you just, they just sort of roll off i mean i think I know the words to every single band song. And they used to use this interesting thing, like a song like Unfaithful Servant. They would tell these, I'm a Canadian band, of course, but they mm-hmm. would sing these alternative, alternative versions of a story, you know, mm-hmm. that particular tune. And that, you know, we would immersed in that kind of storytelling. Side. 
the, the thing that we do with, with having a, uh, a little drama, you know, so like with He'd Send in the Army, you've got the kind of soldier's point of view where he kind of goes, hey, boys, seen any action? You know, yeah. and, <laughs> and then John will be explaining why, why he's felt it necessary to join the army and why, why he's in there. And so it's a little bit of a, a little play kind of thing with, with the narrator and, and somebody in the first person. I think, in a certain sense, we kind of got a little bit of that from the band. You know, these different mm. voices. That's that, oh. And I think that's p- partly where it's like American got it before the Brits did, in a way, yeah. because it was it sat outside of that sort of uh, simple pop vocabulary, mm. I suppose. I mean, mm-hmm. but, yeah. Well, it's a good point too, John. I wanted to follow up on the lyrics. I, I know you both were involved in that, but the double voice technique, also the idea what you were writing about the subject matter i thought was interesting because it was not you know these spectacular attacks on the queen it was about everyday life a kind of almost a mundane kind of existence of an everyday person And the one thing that we came across early on was the, the whole idea of like every relationship is almost like a commercial transaction. Mm. Uh, this kind of very, I don't know, cynical but certainly skeptical viewpoint about the way pe- human beings interact. Well, you're getting to cliche number yeah. two. If cliche number one yeah. is you think while you dance, cliche number two is you guys are Marxists. Yeah. <laughs> You've used the M word. Yeah. yeah. I Sorry, didn't use but, Angular yet, so uh, don't know. Uh, no, yeah, but you just did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that really. It's it's quite interesting. I, I think any reasonably well-educated person ought to reasonably understand the ideas of Karl Marx, but they also should understand the ideas of Adam Smith, mm. you know, or yeah. Ronald Reagan. I mean, I just think it's part of being alive and thinking about stuff. But really, I have no idea what that would mean for writing lyrics, particularly. What I do think happens is that that, that tag is used to dismiss things that are uncomfortable from some perspective. But to think that if you describe things as they are, you know, thinking, you know, the world as it is today with these uh, criminal casino bankers paying themselves billions and billions and billions, and you think about what that means on an ordinary level. I mean, it would be boring to write a song about, you know, the Frankfurt Stock Exchange or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But actually, you, if so you... I'm, I'm digging that idea, you're right? digging yeah. it, yeah. <laughs> Frankfurt, no. Put that, yeah. put, put that on the list of songs yeah. we're going to write about. But um, as soon as you start talking about that uncomfortableness, that uncomfortableness becomes an uncomfortable subject for people who think that what 
the role of music or art is, is, is uh, I think... Uh, it's a like distraction. It's yeah. a distraction. It's meant to divert you. Because mm. we're not a diversion. Mm. But, no, so no. That's, the, that's the thing. Is, uh, you think, God, that's uncomfortable. These guys are... We want a long, comfortable bath. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Well, ironically yeah. enough, I think the worst thing you can say about any piece of art is that it's mere entertainment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly yeah, so. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, it's yeah. that uh, it's the intersection of the macro world and the big events and, you know, the collapse of the economy or a revolution in Egypt or whatever and the the micro world of your own experience and how we experience those things. That and we're kind of interested in that area where they where they meet. So, for example, the beginning of 5:45 is is, you know, how can I sit and eat my tea? with all that blood flowing from the television and then hmm. rather obsessively looking at the egg and seeing a spot of blood in there. It's literally kind of about how you get, I mean, and then it goes on to Northern Ireland. It's about, because Northern Ireland was very much a live thing for us when we were writing songs at the beginning. But those things could could easily be about Guantanamo or, or Iraq, you know. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the precise subject matter may change, but the general theme is kind of intact. It's interesting because here you are, and what, I, what I've loved about the band is that it seems like you go away for periods of time when, you know, okay, we've said what we need to say, we're gone, and then you reconvene, and then it comes back. I remember seeing you, I think it was at Coachella when you first got back together again in this latest yeah. incarnation, and it just blew my head off. I go, wow, that's just like, I could have seen that show in 1981. And then your record has that same kind of feel, like you guys did not do this with a sense of, oh, we're just putting out some content here. You know, you're back now. Do you feel like people sort of get it a little bit more? Because clearly there have been so many bands that have emerged in the last 20 or 30 years, that have name-checked you guys, have ripped you off, have said, have joked about the fact, hey, maybe we should get sued by those guys since we took their sound, as the Red Hot Chili Peppers famously said. Yeah. You know, how does that make you feel? I mean, it's like Bo Diddley, the Bo Diddley beat. If he had a dollar for everybody that played the Bo Diddley beat, he'd mm-hmm. be a very rich man. Mm-hmm. If you had a dollar for every band that ripped you guys off, you'd certainly have a down payment on a house. We prefer to look at the positives here. And <laughs> <laughs> And A, it's flattering, but, you know, deeply so. But also they, they have kind of done some explaining for us. Uh, and also the, the, the great thing is, is that they've, they've helped kind of bring this younger audience along to us. Because all those people that, you know, are into Friends Ferdinand or The Rapture or whatever it is, they kind of talk, uh, talk about us as well. But there's a difference, you know, because there's a, there are types of musics that are not about commerciality. I mean, it's not to say that you don't want to make a living at it, because being um, a musician or a painter or a journalist and content providers all <laughs> is not very easy. But um, if you're outside of the, the commercial transactions, I mean, if you think, you know, like the Duran Duran end of the world, you know, if you're, not, if you're not part of that, then kind of it doesn't matter so much. For good or bad, and, you know, I haven't really focused very much on the financial side of things, you know, and, and I think that's good because it, it doesn't drive us. You know, actually, we can do what we like. Mm-hmm. Mm, you know? yeah. yeah, absolutely. We, we, we only go where our kind of imaginations take us and certainly not where we think the, the dollar might be. Mm-hmm. 
Gentlemen, it's been a real pleasure. Andy Gill, John King of the Gang of Four, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks. To share your sound opinions about Gang of Four or anything under the musical sun, call 888-859-1800. You can also email interact at soundopinions.org or join the conversation at facebook.com slash soundopinions. When we return on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX, we've got the unexpected new album from Radiohead. He fills his head with culture. He gives himself an ulcer. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. I'm here with Greg Cott, and that is Radiohead with a song called Lotus Flower from their eighth album, The King of Limbs. Greg, Radiohead releasing new music is always big news in the music world, as often for the art as for the business. Let's start with the business. When they released their last album in 2007 in Rainbows, a major part of the story was the way they did it. They did it like public radio. They said, here it is on the web. If you like it, take it, pay what you will. They also, of course, put out uh, different editions that cost a lot of money in some cases with a lot of special artwork, but it was revolutionary, and the entire music world was looking at how they did it. The big business news this time is that The King of Limbs was released with an incredibly short cycle of buildup. All of a sudden, there was an announcement Radiohead has an album. They were going to put it out on a Saturday. They actually released it a day early on a Friday via their website. There were two models here. You could pay $9 for the MP3 files, Eight songs, 40-some-odd minutes of music, or $14 for the WAVE files, the WAVE being an uncompressed music file, a higher fidelity. This is no longer pay what you will if you think it's worth anything, because a lot of people downloaded in Rainbows for free, Mm -hmm. and they didn't pay a lot of money. On the other hand, as you pointed out, Radiohead made a lot of money. So it's interesting to see them going to this different model. It's interesting to see them not hyping the release, building anticipation. The physical product does not follow until March 28th in the U.S. on the indie label XL. 
That's the business end of it. What have we got on the artistic end? Once again, we have Radiohead working with their longtime producer, Nigel Godrich. The handful of interviews I've seen band leader, vocalist Tom York do have been focusing on, you know, in Rainbows, we tried. The genesis of that album was a long one in the studio. We spent too long working on it. We were trying to reinvent ourselves. We didn't want to do that again. You get the sense that this is a, a fast and dirty, here's where we were, here's a new set of music, it's, it's pretty short, take it now. Let's hear some music now, and we'll come back and we'll give our reviews. This is a, a song called Codex, it's a piano ballad, by Radiohead on Sound Opinions. That's Codex from the 8th Radiohead studio album, The King of Limbs. Jim, I think to figure out what's going on in this new Radiohead album, I think you have to go back to Tom York's 2006 solo album, The Eraser, which he basically created on his laptop. And then the subsequent tour for that record, which didn't occur until last year, he went out with a band called Adams for Peace with Flea, no less, on bass (laughs) from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. That was a very low-key record, The Eraser, very much an insular, almost claustrophobic-sounding record that really expanded on stage when he went out with that band. Mm. It was marvelous to see it turn into this abstract funk record, and I think that's what Radiohead is aiming for here to a degree. Some of the stuff that works the best and is the most promising about a future direction for Radiohead, because this band never really does sit still. And in songs like Morning Mr. Magpie and Feral... And in Lotus Flower, that song we played at the very top where, you know, with the infam- now infamous video with York spazzing out, yeah. I think there are the seeds for a really interesting abstract funk record. I'm thinking about something along the lines of Talking Heads Remain in Light, which, by the way, is a huge influence on this band. They've all cited that Talking Heads period from the early 80s as a sort of a template for what they've been trying to work on in the last few years. I'd like to see them push more in that direction. I don't hear enough adventurousness in the rest of the music here. It's beautiful, incredibly detailed. Those people calling it essentially a Tom York solo album are way off base. I do believe that the band has contributed a lot to the detail and the layering that's in this record. 
but it doesn't really strike me as a major step forward. I'm, I'm waiting for that next record where I think they can really build on some of the advances they make in a few of these songs, and I'm waiting for that ferocious rhythm section. Colin Greenwood in particular. Yeah. What a bass player. I'd like to hear more of him on the next record. I'm going to give it a burn it for that reason. It's striking. I never thought in all the years that you and I have been uh, fighting about Radiohead that I would hear you say something was a burn it, and <laughs> I, I, I will say it's a buy it. This is a sleeper, this record. Uh, like everybody else, I downloaded it a day earlier than I expected to, and I'm not a daily critic anymore, so I had the leisure of listening for five or six days. It is a grower. It is a good headphones record. It's all about the interaction of those twisted gnome vocals. I like the voice now. I like the way it interacts with those soundscapes. I like the way it interacts, especially with his grand piano. I wish there were some drums on this record. Enough with the metronomic hiccups of digital clips. You got one of the best drummers in rock today with Phil Selway. Let him play his drums. This is not a perfect record. Mm -hmm. You can say this record's a snooze, but I look at it more as a a little bit of a piece of a work in progress. It should have been an EP instead of an album. Nevertheless, I am buying it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, one of us likes to take a trip to the desert island and pop a quarter in the jukebox. Greg, it's your turn. What have you got? Thank you, Jim. Our interview with Gang of Four, they were speaking about their love for Chicago blues music, and that inspires my desert island pick for this week. And it ties in nicely with the 40th anniversary of the great Chicago blues label, Alligator Records. I'm going to go back to the beginning of that label. In 1971, when a young blues fanatic, Bruce Iglauer, then 23 years old, was hanging out at the West Side and South Side Blues Clubs in Chicago, one of the few white faces in there, I might add. This was very much music tailored for and to a South Side working-class black audience, rough violent music for dancing, for drinking, for getting a load off after a, after a long day, a long week at work. And the artist I'm going to play was the perfect mood setter for those kind of shindigs. I'm talking about Hound Dog Taylor and the House Rockers. Hound Dog Taylor born Theodore Roosevelt Taylor in Natchez, Mississippi, part of that diaspora that came up from the South to work and live in Chicago in the 40s and 50s, Never really was properly documented, but what a band he developed by playing four or five nights a week. Taylor on guitar, Brewer Phillips on second guitar, and Ted Harvey on drums. That's all it was, and what a noise they made. You can hear them ripping it up on the song I'm going to play, one of the classic blues tracks on the Alligator catalog from Hound Dog Taylor, Give Me Back My Wig on Sound Opinions.
Give Me Back My Wig by Hound Dog Taylor, Greg's Desert Island Jukebox pick. The Sound Opinions Desert Island Jukebox is supported by Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark bourbon. It is what it isn't. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we have the founder of one of the great music labels of all time, Electra Records, Jack Holzman. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Gang of Four was recorded by Mary Gaffney. Our own production team, Gang of Four, is Nick Anthrax, Myers, Jason, Damaged Goods, Saldana, Robin, Essence Rare, Lynn, and of course our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia. He loves a man in a uniform. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hi, Jim and Greg. I wanted to say, first of all, thank you for a great show. I really enjoy the Valentine's Day show on Unrequited Love. But I was surprised that no one mentioned the Gene Pitney hit from 1964, It Hurts to Be in Love. I think it's one of the greatest songs about Unrequited Love. My father talks about it all the time because during the summer of 64, he was working at a Jewish pool club, a swim club, and I guess there was this teenage girl that he was absolutely in love with, but it was unrequited love, and he said he played that song over and over again on his record player, so he has fond memories of it. Thanks again, and this is Jennifer Jordan from the Netherlands. Bye. Jim and Greg, uh, this is Todd from Robinson, North Carolina. I was calling to let you know that I really enjoyed your interview with Eric Lefkowitz about the Monkees. To me, the Monkees have been a group that have been much maligned through the years, you know, with the usual tribe about, oh, they weren't a real band and this thing and that thing. But I believe that uh, Eric summed it up pretty well about uh, the group with the surroundings that they had with the uh, the Brill Building songwriters and Don Kirshner and everything. And I think history has shown that the the popularity of the monkeys, you know, has remained pretty constant, if not grown much higher uh, through the years. One thing I wanted to add as well was, in my view, Mickey Dolan's delivered one of the greatest uh, pop vocals ever uh, with the song Going Down, which to me is my favorite monkey song of all time. I think Mickey, uh, in a lot of ways, is not really given his due as one of the uh, great pop folk was in, uh, in history. So 
I just wanted to chime in with my viewpoint. Thanks a lot and take care. y'all this is david out in portland oregon wow 39 minutes of the monkeys everything's an opportunity cost and i just really have to wonder what could you have done with 39 minutes on any of the great artists trying to break through today just like what could have kirshner and his production team could have done if they'd have really put it all out for a struggling group of true artists instead of Four guys who were manufactured from a marketing plan. Really love the show, but anyway, have to pan this week's effort. Bye bye. You're trying to make your mark in society. You're using all the tricks that you used on me. You're reading all them high fashion magazines. The clothes you're wearing, girl, are causing public scenes. I said, I. Good morning, this is Carmi from Skokie, Illinois. Just heard the piece about the monkeys and loved it, loved it, loved it. Brings me back to when I was 11 and uh, listened to them a lot. One thing I remember, one thing I want to point out, it was the first time that I actually look at, looked at records and looked at who the songwriters were. I remember the songs of Tommy Voice and Bobby Hart being really, really good. And i got to say that their songs started me into listening to melody and... And, you know, what, what a good song is, what a good songwriter is. Thank you very much, and have a good day. When I first met you, girl, you didn't have no shoes. But now you're walking around like your front page news. You've been awful careful about the friends you choose. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.